Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Well, today's webinar run by HEAD is going to be discussing GDEs and what's been achieved in a particular program. And I'm really lucky today to be joined by Linda Watts, who's been running the program at Imperial. And for those of you that don't know Linda, Linda's got an amazing background in healthcare IT, digital transformation, and running change programs in the NHS. Linda has been a clinical facilitator for health informatics, has run some of the national programs uh, within IMT, and then has been working with a number of trusts across the country on transformation programs, both in outpatients and then more recently at the GDE program at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. And Linda has led on the transformation that's taking place there in outpatients using uh, Attend Anywhere. And today we're going to hear from Linda about that. So Linda, welcome to this webinar. Thank you for joining us. Um, it'd be great to hear from you a little bit about what you've been doing at Imperial and what your role's been about. Hi Sam, so uh, thanks for that great intro there. Um, yeah, at Imperial College, so I joined four years ago, just about, and um, for the last three years I've been leading the GDE programme, uh, which concluded in March this year. Um, so the GDE for the Trust um, was a joint GDE between Imperial College um, and Chelsea and Westminster Hospitals, um, and it was one of the largest GDEs in the country. We were focused mainly on enhancing digital capability, standardising processes across two big NHS trusts and focusing on patient safety. And the overall outcome was for us to have an evaluation with, um, to try to achieve HIMSS level seven at the end of the programme. And what does that mean for the NHS? Because obviously lots of people heard about HIMSS levels uh, and the GDE programme. Was that one of the requirements of the programme? Is that something that everyone had to do? So it wasn't at the beginning of the GDE programme, it was something that was introduced midway through, um, but they was, um, it was added as one of the achievements for the, the programme to finish. And do you think that helped you and all the other people involved in GDEs, do you think it helped sort of focus on the outcome? Definitely. So it gave us some really key patient safety messages um, that we could adhere to. And that, that focused our digital implementation. So a lot of the software that we provided towards the end of the programme was, was specifically aimed at increasing the safety for our patients in uh, Imperial. And um, for those that aren't familiar with the GD programme, does it, for example, come with any resourcing or funding that helps organisations participate and run their programme? It did, yes. So uh, Imperial, our GDE programme was a £30 million programme over three years. Um, and that was joint funded between um, Imperial and Chelsea and Westminster. So Imperial um, put £10 million worth of funding in, Chelsea and Westminster £5 million, And then NHS Digital, it was matched funded, so they gave us £15 million. So we had £30 million over the three years. 
it seems like a great way of getting organizations to collaborate and bringing teams together. Do you think as part of this GD, did it, did it do that for you? And did it help build relationships between the trust and uh, national organizations? Definitely. So we um, work very collaboratively now with Chelsea and Westminster. So um, for anybody that doesn't know, Chelsea and Westminster have joined our EPR. So they've joined our um, CERNA instance and we're actually both sitting on the same CERNA instance now. So there is, we're currently working on turning off some of the rules which separate the two organisations so that we can share patient records across all seven hospitals that are run by the Imperial and Chelsea group. Um, and that model is now, has been adapted at other trusts um, but it's also opened us up to a wider GDE community and that those lines of communication are now really embedded between the different organisations. And that's great to hear that there's a, an outcome for the system that's just bigger than the GDE programme alone in that, you know, you're in northwest London in a, in a fairly big STP, well-known mm -hmm. STP in that area. And, and it must be a great result for the system to have benefited beyond this particular use case. Thinking about the actual project itself, it'd be great if you could just give everyone that's uh, listening a summary of what this project was about, because everyone's heard lots about video consultations, but this is quite specific. Yes, yeah, so we um, have been running um, a pilot of video consultations for NHS Digital for probably about three months before the coronavirus pandemic and our role at Imperial was to try to work out whether video consultations could work at a large acute trust and whether there was an option or an uptake from clinicians and patients to move from a traditional face-to-face -face setting. Um, we'd just, we were just at the very beginning of um, concluding a pilot and we were looking at the outcome of the pilot which in part was positive but there was areas that needed improvement um, when the coronavirus um, arrived and then we had to upscale quite quickly. And for those that aren't familiar with Imperial it's one of the biggest trusts in the country and if we think about the 124 million outpatient consultations that take place every year in England what sort of volume were you dealing with at Imperial? So we have approximately 1.2 million outpatient attendances a year. So that's almost 10% of, uh, sorry, it's almost 1% uh, of the NHS total, which is quite significant when you think about the number of uh, trusts across the country. Mm -hmm. so, so in terms of the project itself, what did it entail? What sort of system were you using and uh, how did you bring that in? So we used a system that was currently in use in Scotland. Um, so it was run, it was managed by NHS Scotland and it's a product called Attend Anywhere. Um, and we had that on loan in effect from NHS England um, whilst we piloted it. Excellent. And, and in some of the sorts of things that happen, how did you go about designing the actual programme and what sort of teams did you bring together to work on this? So we brought together um, the, we had a clinician body that were looking at it from a clinician perspective and how it could work um, in a 
non-traditional outpatient setting as long as well as running alongside an actual clinic setting and then we had some patient um, input so we contacted our lay patients and did some patient surveys within the outpatient area as well um, and again this was prior to corona um, and then we brought the nursing team and the admin um, teams who support the outpatient clinics along with our colleagues in ICT. Imperial's so, you know, a very well-known trust, it's world-renowned, it's got lots of clinical academics mm-hmm. working across the trust. Mm-hmm. How was it for people that might be working in a more, used to work in a more traditional setting and how did you go about helping those clinicians sort of go through that change mechanism? Um, so we for the pilot um, that was quite simple because we had clinicians who wanted to be engaged as well as uh, we tried to bring along with us some clinicians who were less willing so we had some um, specialties who said that this would never ever work for them Um, and so we asked them to be a part of the pilot and took their feedback Um, and then we also we've we've joined forces so imperial have um a group called the helix group and our heat they work with our they're our research and innovation hub and we um joined forces with them to help build on the positives to bring in some clinicians who were less willing to join us on this um on this journey i suppose so it's it's it, it it's all sort of it was easy to get the clinicians who wanted to do this and who could see this um, as working for them. Um, but, but then the sort of the ones who were less willing to work with us, we had to build on their negatives to turn them round into positives for them. If it that sounds, makes sense. Yeah, and it sounds like you spent some time speaking to those clinical teams and understanding what their issues and problems and needs were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's great that you've got a centre like Helix, uh, which is quite unique there to the Imperial setup. Mm-hmm. How did that work for other partners in the GD programme? Were you able to share learning from that with other sites and with other teams? And if so, what were the main things you were able to share with them? So we did. One of the main things that we shared with other areas was the output from the patient survey that we do at the end of the um, attend anywhere consultation so um, as the patient ends the consultation they it launches a questionnaire and we ask things like how easy was it to join how would you recommend it to your friends and family did you know how much money did you do you think you've saved on average how much time did you manage to did you feel confident that you could Um, get everything across that you would normally get across in a face-to-face environment and the output from that is extremely positive on all of those questions that we ask so that was a big um, that that was a really big help in us convincing clinicians who um, didn't think it was a good idea but it was also a good starting point for other trusts that we've worked with for them to say well actually it works for this cohort of patients in London and therefore it should work elsewhere so because I think we felt some of the pain we were able to share that and that's a that's a sort of trick that we've learned as part of GDE. So one person can sort of feel a little bit of the pain and the other trust benefit from it. 
And, and with other trusts, through the GD programme, have you been able to partner up or have discussions with other trusts either within London or elsewhere? Uh, and if so, what sort of collaborations have emerged? So we've um, started a, a user group and um, a video consult user group um, and we've had quite lengthy conversations with King's College and um, colleagues at UCLH um, and then we've also had conversations and provided a lot of documentation um, data and support to um, trusts in Ireland and North Cumbria and um, you know up and down the country really, Warrington, the Northern Care Alliance have been particularly interested in the things that we're doing. So it's been really good. We've had a lot of interest from a lot of other areas. It's great to hear that there's been some scale, especially for a programme that's nationally supported. Mm -hmm. And certainly from experience, it's really difficult running a national programme. What was it like working with the national team and what sort of expectations do they have on you as a GDE in terms of reporting or other things and, and how did that work? Do you mean as a, you mean, do you, sorry Sam, do you mean as part of the GDE programme or do you mean as just for the video consultations? As part of the GDE programme because mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming for a big national programme there have been expectations on filling in templates, reports and how did, how did that work for you? So for GDE it was, um, it was quite refreshing because we had a GDE lead that was assigned to us from NHS Digital um, and once a quarter we would need to complete um, a document which basically said we had quarterly milestones that we needed to hit and so they once a quarter we'd produce a document that said this is what we said we'd do, this is what we've actually delivered, we'd had to we had to provide the evidence for it and based on our our program plan if we were in line with a plan we could draw down our funding um, and um, luckily for us we drew down all of our funding and drew it all down on time um, and then at the end of the program um, we had to have um, a site visit for them to come have a look see some of the things that we said we were going to do in action um, and then they would release the final payment. Um, and do you think that really focused the teams involved in helping everyone work towards the outcome because knowing that was the process you were going through? Definitely, definitely. It was it was um, absolutely, I, I totally enjoyed that approach because it actually, um, it made sure because we were spending and working to deliver something, it actually kept everybody focused down on what we were delivering and making sure that we drew the benefits out the other side. So not just taking some software and putting it out on the ward or taking some hardware and putting it out on the ward. We also had to make sure that people were using it and that we were getting that benefit that we said we were going to get out the other side. So um, it was fabulous. And often when we're involved in these sort of projects that are either pilots or uh, short-term projects, what happens afterwards when the GDE ends? Does the trust have to then put in the resource to carry it on? And um, obviously the product was on loan from uh, NHS England. Does, do you have to go through a process of finding another product now? So, so the answer to the first part of that question is yes. So we have to continue to report um, back on progress and benefits for the GDE. Um, with regards to the next steps for video consultation, we um, 
the, the NHS has signed a national contract which runs out in March 2021. And so we will have to go through a, pre, a period of procurement at some point this year um, to determine whether we want to stay with the product that we've got and whether it offers us the best value, whether it offers whether it's the best product. Um, and if not, then we'll look, we'll have to look to move to a different product. But that's that's already on our plan for this year is to um, write up a business case and look for alternatives. And, and in terms of sort of working with clinicians uh, and others who are having to go through that change process, were there any particular champions or stories that you've got of areas where they, they really adopted it and where they de demonstrated that it worked well? So, um, yes, I'll go to our very first clinician who, um, at the beginning of, of COVID-19, um, identified that he had a group of patients that were particularly vulnerable, in his opinion. Um, and so, and that's our pulmonary hypertension um, clinics. So, um, Luke Howard, who's the clinical lead there, um, was fabulous. And he contacted us straight away and said, could we... Um, sign him up for video consultations because he's, he didn't want his patients to travel into the hospital. And so very quickly we stood up the clinic and he was our first response to COVID-19 clinic that ran. Um, he sees patients across London um, and also has, we have colleagues from King's College. So um, they come to us, we see their patients, they see our patients, etc. And so um, our video platform runs across both organizations so that regardless of where they are, they can still use the platform. And then we've also been providing some help to clinicians in Wales. And we've been seeing some Welsh patients where we've um, fed into their um, consultations via video and vice versa so um, it's really worked well for cardiology and, and at the moment are you using it for both uh, follow-up appointments and first appointments or is it being used for, for one or the other so we originally started with follow-up and now we're moving to first attenders so we've got our first cohorts of clinics that are running first attendance appointments via video so um, diabetes um, are doing some first attenders um, and cardiology are doing their first attenders via um, video and then surprisingly we've got areas which I never thought would be able to use it so we've got a pilot starting in our ophthalmology um, ED follow-up clinic that they're going to do via video and then we have a large group from trauma and orthopedic who um, really like the platform and they're now seeing their clinic their patients via video. That must be really interesting for an area like that that maybe it's sometimes more difficult to change to move towards an approach using video. Do you mm -hmm. think that was driven by the need to deal with COVID-19 or did it come from them actually getting feel for the system and realizing that it could help them? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so um, we never thought about them because of the nature of the patients um, but I, th I think they've seen a gap and an opportunity and grabbed it.
so it's been really refreshing the T&O guys have been fabulous you know so they're doing range of movement clinics you know after a after a trauma um, and obviously they can do that via video so it's um, it's really refreshing it's and now it's got some momentum behind it it's really starting to gather pace across imperial and, and talk me through the process what happens in terms of the patient is there some sort of check-in process and what, what's the flow for them yeah so the patient will receive um, a text message or an email with a link they follow the link and that then takes them to the video platform. They can um, test their telephone. So if they're working on a smartphone or a tablet, they can test to make sure that the, um, they can hear, they can see, pe people can hear and see them. Um, and then they drop into a waiting room. And then we have a different, we've got two different approaches. Some people want the patients to drop into their own um, waiting room and they just, the clinicians go in and pick the patient up from there. Alternatively, we have patients who will drop into a virtual waiting room and a receptionist will pick them up and move them into the, um, into the clinic room for the clinician. It just depends on the size of clinic, I suppose. Um, and we can do both things. And what were some of the objectives in the, for the trust overall? Were there particular business cases around what they wanted to reduce or transform in terms of volumes or numbers and over what sort of time period trust looking at this? So we were definitely already on that path of looking at how we could reduce footfall through our outpatient area because um, although the imperial name is very impressive our site at St Mary's in Paddington is far from impressive and so we're um, due for a hospital rebuild and because we're um, land in London is an absolute premium so we're very landlocked um, they wanted to reduce as many outpatient appointment requirements as they possibly could so our outpatient areas are being asked to shrink and shrink um, and so we have a view that we'd like to remove 70% of our outpatient appointments at in Paddington to um, virtual by 2022. That's quite ambitious and quite impressive so how far, how far along have you come as a result of this uh, um, program? So we're, we're still at our early stages. However, work has, has, we're a long way down the pathway with the individual specialties um, for them to come back to tell us which areas they think that they can reduce those numbers by. So although we've not got the virtual footfall working yet, we're probably 60% through the plan to move areas to virtual. So we've identified large cohorts of patients that can be moved to virtual slots. Okay, and, and as a result of this, were there other things that emerged that changed or became transformed as, as by going through this process, the things that you picked up and learned that um, meant that there were added benefits? So yeah, there's, there's, uh, I, I suppose the outpatient reduction, you know, so we've now got lots of empty rooms um, in St Mary's Hospital because we, we would be running outpatient appointments and we're not running them from there anymore, we're doing them virtually. There's been a big increase in um, the clinician satisfaction and um, they can now run the appointments from 
different areas so rather than the clinicians having to go to an outpatient area every day to, or every day they're in clinic to run their clinic they can run them from home they can run them from their offices um, they don't have to go to that area anymore um, but there's there's also been um, a, a a large uptake in the patient satisfaction surveys so um, our patients are, seem to be a lot happier now than than we anticipated. And, and it must be really disorientating for some clinicians if I take myself I'm used to a certain flow when I see a patient in person mm -hmm. uh, at the end of it I might need to at the end of a consultation might be giving someone a prescription or a leaflet or a form how does that happen in the virtual space and uh, what did you do to help train clinicians to work in a different way? Yeah, so one of the feedback that we had um, as part of the pilot was that the clinicians found it really difficult to end the consultation. So the patient would um, initially in a face to face, the clinician would hand the patient an outcome form and that was the clinician ending the consultation because they were directing the patient off somewhere else. And so we have had to do a little bit of work with the clinicians to give them some hints and tips as to how to end the consultation, such as um, I'll, we'll email you your next appointment letter, we'll, conf you know, we'll confirm how, what you need to do next and give them some virtual handoffs to the patients rather than um, that physical handing of paper. But, um, and has there been any feedback from patients uh, about that or any ideas that come from clinicians? Um, no, so one, apart from one of the things that we have done um, in the virtual platform is we've built in um, at the end of the um, attendance as the clinician hangs up the phone um, to end the consultation, we've now launched the virtual outcome form. So our clinicians can now outcome electronically, which was something that they couldn't do previously. And as coronavirus hit, and I'm certain this would have been a problem for trusts up and down the country, as coronavirus became a problem, they, um, they trust the outcome on a paper format would have had this problem that the paper was no longer there so the clinician wasn't in the clinic to get the paper and the receptionist wasn't in the clinic to, for the paper to be handed to by the patient and so a lot of that broke down for us so what we've done to make it easier for the clinicians is we've built that outcome form and they complete that electronically and it drops on the patients drop onto a virtual waiting list that's been an absolute positive from our clinicians perspective so they particularly like the fact that they can end the consultation click three buttons and the patient's been outcomed at the end that must be quite exciting though to see that additional transformation take place and almost mm. get rid of a paper process just by that's, going through this that's right and it was something that we never thought about so prior to um, all the time that we've been running the pilot we never thought about adding that. It was only the added problem that Corona gave us that we were looking for a solution for it. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a welcome addition. It really sounds like for Imperial, going through the GD process and being part of the programme has been quite positive and beneficial. Mm. So what happens next? Will the GD programme carry on and how do you carry on being part of that? So um, I believe that there's some that the 
that NHS England are looking at the aspirant programme. And um, what the aspirant programme is, is that's focused on hospitals that aren't as digitally enabled as other trusts. And we're very, very lucky at Imperial that um, we have the majority of our project, our processes on a digital platform. And so I think that there'll be some requirements from the GDEs to help the um, aspirants develop their uh, digital footprints. And so there's a lot of learning that can happen from trusts that have been through that pain previously of implementing EPRs and um, electronic prescribing and a lot of the big projects, you know, for us, our big project last year was our positive patient ID project. And so there's a, um, a, a, a lot of learning that we can give to all the trusts that are at the beginning of that journey. So Linda, that was uh, that was really helpful, and it was great to, to hear about how uh, that's sort of happening with the aspirin program and what's what's coming what's coming next. Do you think that being part of this program and doing all of this, do you think it helped uh, the trust prepare for COVID nineteen? And has it had has it been you know, was it helpful going through it? And do you think the clinicians are better prepared? Definitely, um, I think because we were already. Um, quite enhanced digitally, we were able to just upscale a lot of the things that we did. So, um, and caring for the patients is a lot easier because everything was already electronic. So, um, one of the things that we've had to do at Imperial is we've um, more than tripled our ICU beds. But because we were already on um, a digital platform for that, it was a case if we had a model that we could follow. And so we just simply started to look at areas that had oxygen and rolled the software and the IT equipment out there to help um, the clinicians care for the patients. So um, obviously the, we had the same problems that other people had around PPE and, you know, patient flow and blah, blah, blah. But the actual caring for the patients and reporting and recording of the data was a lot simpler, I think, for Imperial because we're in that very fortunate position. What would your advice be to other sites that want to pick up this blueprint and run with it? And how can they use this to help prepare themselves for what could possibly be the next wave of COVID or even flu? So I think that um, the advice I'd give them would be to, to look at the NHS Futures site um, and um, look at areas where we've tried to identify things that we could possibly have done a little bit better we are just in the process of updating that future site so that we're going to include the things like the electronic outcome form that we've put on the end of the um the end of the consultation um, and then if they have any doubts or questions or queries to reach out to Imperial because we really enjoy that collaborative working across other organisations and so we're more than happy to share any documentation, risk logs, plans, approaches with any other trust that wants to reach out to us. It really sounds like the GD programme has injected some energy enthusiasm but most importantly some collaboration between organizations in the NHS. Yep. So often I hear about 
uh, companies working with the NHS where they say they must have to start again each time they go around from one place to the other. Mm. Do you think this has helped reduce some of those barriers, just made it easier for trying to implement and deploy technology across the system? So I think definitely, and I think it's something, hopefully, that will continue to grow within the NHS. So before um, the coronavirus um, affected us, we were already working collaboratively with um, the Royal Free. So Imperial currently are rebuilding an awful lot of their um, nursing workflows. And so we'd had an agreement with the Royal Free that we'll look at the nursing um, workflows and you can look at some other workflows where both CERNA organizations and so we'll build the nursing ones and give them to the Royal Free and the Royal Free will build the other ones and give them back to us so rather than as both working on the same things and CERNA working on the same things CERNA are only working on specifics now with different organizations and um, on the back of that agreement we'd started a collaborative piece with St George's so they'd been over for a visit and we'd been over there and so we were looking at what we could do on a similar footing with St George's so that you start to pull together as all working on different elements of CERNA to improve the patient flow from start to finish rather than each trust doing its own thing. And the other thing as well that that helps us with is the training material and staff training, because if we're all working in the same way, somebody, if you have a nurse that leaves St. George's and joins Imperial, they should really be able to hit the ground running because it's the same system. And so that's what we've found with Chelsea and Westminster and Imperial now is because we're both on the same version of CERNA, staff can move seamlessly across sites and not realise that they're working for a different organisation because the CERNA footprint is the same. And so I think that's the goal across, um, particularly across Northwest London, is to standardise a lot of those processes so that we're all working in the same way. It really seems like being part of the GDE has helped get some way towards consistency between the providers in, mm. in an area. And it feels like you've got some reach beyond uh, just the geography that you're operating in. That's what are your goals beyond the GDE? What would you like to do next? Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't really know. I'd like us to build um, on the GDE footprint. I'd like to go back and, and relook at HIMS. Um, so we were, we'd had our evaluation um, from NHS England and we were waiting for um, MRAM to come in and do the evaluation for us. But then obviously we've had to stop it. But I'd like us to go back and finish that, um, that HIMS um, approach and then I'd like us to look at to uh, I think that there's a an, an opportunity now to look at patient flow and how we um, make that a little bit more patient-centric and see how we can possibly move things out into the community and see patients in a completely different way while whilst working collaboratively with our um, neighbouring trusts I think that there's a massive opportunity now. Well, it certainly feels like you've achieved an awful lot with uh, your GD program. From what I'm hearing, there are implications across the system. You've created something that's more patient-centric and improving the experience for the users going through the trust and just using outpatients. 
And, and this probably also has implications for the design of all these new hospitals or new builds because the amount of outpatient facility may not need to be the same as what it was before. Mm. And, and beyond that, it seems like it's changed the clinical workflow to an extent as well. Mm. So it's, it's great to hear about the progress you've made. And it really seems like you're an advocate for the GD programme and what it could do to help other organisations. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Thanks for joining us today and really sharing your experience. I'm sure many people will be interested in this and hopefully there'll be more applicants for the future programmes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET Live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.